We're going to check in with Jason Tetro. He is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. And we're talking about contact tracing and what exactly that means and what it looks like. Jason, thanks so much for being back with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, we've been hearing, uh, it's so strange how words that or phrases that we never used before have now become the norm when we talk about physical distancing, social distancing, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like contact tracing might also become one of those phrases. Well, I mean, we have used this in the past. I mean, HIV was huge when it came to contact tracing. Ebola, you probably heard about contact tracing a million times when we were talking about developing a vaccine. That's what ring vaccination is for. It's just that this is the first time that contact tracing probably represents something that's important to you at home right now. Uh, and it's, it's a fabulous tool that we have to be able to help control outbreaks and spread of epidemics and even pandemics. So what exactly is it? Well, essentially what happens is a person gets infected. Well, they didn't get it from just anywhere. And I mean, it just didn't magically appear. There's a very good likelihood that they got it from somebody else. Now, the problem is that you have to find out who that somebody else is. And so what you do is you sit down with the individual and you have a discussion with them about all the people that they may have come into contact with over a certain period of time. And then what you do is then you go outward of that to that next level and you have a discussion with them. You also want to do some testing with them to see if any of them happen to be positive. And then eventually what happens is that you can work your way backwards so that you go from the initial patient that you've talked with all the way back to the index patient. So, for example, when the first outbreaks occurred in British Columbia, they were able to trace all of that back to a cruise ship. That's essentially what contact tracing does. Where it gets a little problematic is when it becomes um, stochastic. In other words, you don't know which of the contacts this person had that actually came into contact with the virus because they're either not showing symptoms or they've tested negative, or that person can't remember (laughs) who they may have come into contact with because, you know, they were in the Costco and they were arguing with someone over toilet paper, but they don't remember the person. Right. And we we do this to a certain extent, don't we, in that even when this first started and people were still flying, I remember there were warnings going out or saying somebody has tested positive and if you were sitting in these seats, you possibly were exposed to this virus. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I know that we're talking more about this now because of COVID-19, but it's happened with measles how many years in a row now? Mm. Every time somebody shows up with measles, we start telling them that, well, if you happen to be in this location, in this seat on the plane or in this part of the airport, you really should go and get yourself tested or at least get yourself vaccinated, right? Well, it's going to be the same thing with this. So in this particular case, because we don't have a vaccine and we don't have a very good treatment, we have to be absolutely certain that we're making sure where we know this, where it's come from, and then isolating or at least, you know, monitoring those individuals so that we don't get a bigger spread. Because what happens is if you can do proper contact tracing, then you can identify clusters. So you've heard about clusters happening in uh, nursing homes, uh, cruise ships, airplanes, that type of thing. Well, that's what you wanted to maintain. If all of a sudden it becomes something that's that sporadic, where it all of a sudden is all over the community and you can't trace it, well, then no longer have you got something that's controllable. You essentially have to wait for it to start burning itself out. Do you think it'll work as well, though, It with something like this, as different from HIV or Ebola, where the contact has to be actual contact, whereas now we're dealing with this virus where we're still unclear how it can spread or how much it's spreading from people who don't have any symptoms, and it can be somebody, like you said, that you had an argument with that you might not even remember. 
Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why it's very hard for us to be able to trace things like the flu or some of the common colds that are out there. Um, it's because it's so hard to be able to identify who the contact may have been that spread it. I think, and, and I could be wrong, but I'm thinking that based on what we're hearing from even British Columbia, but also the World Health Organization, that we're going to get to this point where it is going to be untraceable in that context, and that we're essentially just going to call it another seasonal. And remember, the pandemic influenza that happened in 2009-2010, right? Mm -hmm. That is now the circulating virus for influenza this year. We're just not tracing it because, well, it's basically gone to everybody and it can spread so rapidly we can't contact trace it. This may end up happening with this particular bug. And do you see that then as far as does this help us get to a more uh, a place of herd immunity or does it, does it just give us more information as we continue working on a vaccine? I think right now what we want to do is we want to maintain the slow burn that we currently have. Um, and we may eventually get to a point where we can start relaxing restrictions, and as a result, we still maintain a slow burn. And then eventually it should start to um, you know, spread in a way that it can be controlled. Now, if we continue the slow burn, we're going to be able to protect the most vulnerable people so that they don't get infected, end up in hospital, and possibly die. The rest of the people who are what we call immunocompetent or, or able to beat this virus will do so. And then when we finally get to the point where we have that treatment and a vaccine, we're going to be able to implement that so that the level of risk that comes for severe infections will go down dramatically. And then essentially we'll get back to what we do know is what, you know, with the flu and, and some other viruses out there. All right. Uh, good information. Uh, one other question just before I let you go. Do you think we need to be or will we see then places in, in B.C. and in the country in Canada ramping up contact tracing? Well, I mean, when we start getting more testing going, we're going to obviously have more opportunity for contact tracing. That being said, until we start seeing a major exponential rise in cases and or hospitalizations and deaths, we might actually want to start focusing our work on, you know, maintaining where we are, maintaining that slow burn so that, um, you know, the people aren't getting burnt out. Uh, I mean, there are great epidemiologists out there. You know, Dr. Henry has a great team, but they're also human. So let's not totally burn them out. (laughs) All right, Jason, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Take care. Thanks for being with us. There has been a lot of talk about a vaccine for COVID-19 and all of the work that's being done around the world. But what is the issue when it comes to perhaps rushing treatments and vaccines? And what possible risks does that pose? Well, Landon Getz joins me now, Vanier Scholar and PhD candidate in microbiology and immunology at Dalhousie University. Thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, You've written about this uh, and compared it uh, with other pandemics and other cases where there has uh, been uh, a lot of work to make a vaccine to get that vaccine on the market. Uh, What are your concerns, though, about rushing things? Right. So in terms of uh, rushing treatments or vaccines, um, it's it's actually kind of unlikely that it will happen. Um, There's a lot of frameworks in place and and science uh, is... Uh, designed to uh, take its time and do things properly. Um, but because we're in the situation that we're in and everybody is, is eager to get back to work, um, you know, there, there, is the concept, there is the possibility that we might rush and take some, uh, 
some evidence prematurely uh, and actually move forward with some kind of treatment. Uh, so my, my worries are really that, uh, that we won't follow the frameworks or that um, some politicians might choose not to follow the frameworks. And we could end up in a situation where uh, we use a treatment prematurely and there, there are harms or consequences associated with that. And we've seen that already, haven't we, with this, as far as there were concerns earlier with people, uh, anecdotal cases or, or some other documented cases as well that looked at ibuprofen and said perhaps that was a concern. Uh, we've seen the president of the United States allowing certain treatments and then that being debunked. So we have seen some of that already. We definitely have, yeah. The the president of the United States was talking specifically about hydroxychloroquine, um, which has been really uh, struggled, I guess, because the um, early reports showed that it might be beneficial. And now there's been a number of studies that have shown uh, it's actually not beneficial and potentially could be quite harmful. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm talking about when I talk about rushing. If we had jumped forward at the first evidence that hydroxychloroquine was good, we might have ended up giving it, giving it to too many people uh, and causing actually harm uh, in, in the end. And uh, you also mentioned, uh, you make note uh, of Premier Jason Kenney. He's been talking about going away or moving ahead of Health Canada. What are the concerns there? Right. So it's really related to the same thing about uh, frameworks that we have for approving things as well as sort of the way that we do science generally, right? Um, So we want any treatment or uh, vaccine to go through the proper scientific protocols, the proper approval processes. And to skip ahead of something like Health Canada uh, is potentially to, uh, like I said, rush rush ahead of um, the proper... Um, what's the word I'm looking for, the proper uh, analysis of the data to make sure that the um, vaccine or treatment is actually beneficial. And we have learned lessons, or you bring up a very important lesson learned, and thalidomide, which was used in Canada and did have some pretty uh, horrific consequences. Yeah, that's exactly right. So hydroxy, or not hydroxychloroquine, sorry, uh, thalidomide was used as uh, a uh, nausea deterrent, I guess, uh, in pregnant women, um, as many people probably know. And uh, it works quite well for its purpose. Um, But what people didn't realize originally was that it also caused uh, fetal malformations um, in pregnant women. And so, uh, you know, we dealt dealt with the consequences of that. And subsequently, our approval processes have learned from that mistake, right? And so it's really, again, important that we follow those processes because we've learned from those historical mistakes. And so is it a balancing act then or how do we how do we do that when it is so important to do this research and to get a vaccine? Uh, And of course, the time is of the essence and we want to do this as quickly, but also as safely as possible. How do you balance the two? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what I'm definitely not advocating for is uh, working too slowly or, you know, taking too much time such that uh, we don't end up with a treatment at all. One of the ways that people are trying to get uh, ahead of it and move really quickly is uh, that they're testing multiple vaccines. So a lot of the trials that are going on right now, including the WHO Solidarity trial, have about 70 vaccines enrolled in them that they're going to test sort of uh, at the same time. Uh, The goal here is that instead of testing a single vaccine, finding out it doesn't work or it's not safe and having to throw it away and start over, you can start with 70 potential vaccines, figure out which one is actually safe, which ones are effective, and then move forward from there. Uh, And so I think that's one of the ways that science is is moving forward. Um, The other thing is that uh, ensuring that the scientific community is communicating and collaborating, um, which we've seen during this pandemic, probably one of the most unprecedented uh, kinds of collaboration within the scientific community. And so I think definitely uh, science and government is doing its its best to fast track this 
um, while still making sure that we're, uh, our treatments and vaccines are safe and effective. Are we getting better at producing or coming up with vaccines? Is it the kind of thing that the more you do it, the better or the more streamlined the process gets? Or is it starting from zero every time? We definitely have a lot of things in place that help. And so as science progresses over time, we learn more about the immune system. We learn more about viruses. It makes it easier for us to, to design new vaccines. Uh, as well, you know, scientists are constantly developing platforms and, um, and protocols for designing these kinds of things. So over time, we definitely are getting better at it. You know, it's remarkable that, you know, this, this thing popped up in January, uh, a little bit before that. And, you know, we've already got 70 vaccines and many of them are already starting sort of really early stage clinical trials. And we're really only four and a half months into this thing. Um, so it's pretty, pretty remarkable that we're seeing uh, the amount of speed that we are. And, and how important will it be once we get to that point of having a vaccine, having the buy-in? I know Dr. Bonnie Henry in BC has talked about this, saying we don't have mandatory vaccinations in this country. She would never want us to go down that road. She would never want to see that. But on the flip side of that, if you have a vaccine, it's only going to work if people buy into it. That's exactly right. So we've been hearing a lot about herd immunity um, lately. And the idea with herd immunity is that uh, vaccines are really only effective if you can achieve that kind of herd immunity. So that the people who can't get the vaccines, the immunocompromised, people who might be uh, on, on various treatments um, that don't allow them to get it, those people are protected because everybody around them is protected by a vaccine. If you don't have that sort of 90, 95% buy-in with a vaccine, you end up with sort of holes in your vaccine network where the virus might be able to actually spread through individuals and continue to move. Um, so it's definitely the case that, you know, while we don't have mandatory vaccination and of course individual choice is important, uh, it is also very important that people people understand that the vaccines are tested and tried and they are definitely uh, safe and effective um, and it's quite important that people uh, people buy in and get the vaccine as much as possible and is it that also making sure uh, that the general public that uh, that people understand because I think there is some confusion in that is this something like chickenpox that if you've had it once you're not going to get it again or you're very unlikely to get it again or is it something like the flu even though you've had it you could still get it uh, the different strain of it or a different form of it yeah, this is part of the reason it's so important that we sort of follow science and, and wait for it to come up with an answer, because my answer, while it's not particularly exciting, is that we simply don't know yet. Um, the, the virus is very new. We've only seen uh, viruses like this a couple of times. And so understanding exactly what's going to happen long term, if there is the risk of reinfection, if there's a risk of the virus changing like seasonal influenza and becoming something new that we might be able to get year after year uh, is things we just don't know yet. And we just we just have to be patient and wait for science to to give us those answers. First, let's take a look at what is happening in the downtown east side of Vancouver. And there are a lot of concerns about the possible spread of COVID-19 and the difficulties when it comes to trying to physically distance in that area. Jeremy Hunka joins me on the line now. He is a spokesperson with Union Gospel Mission. Jeremy, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Happy to be here. Uh, how are people doing in, in this uh, very strange time and, and with dealing with the virus? It's really hard. Uh, it's really difficult for people right now who are experiencing homelessness or who are in the downtown east side. There's a lot of anxiety. There's some worry. There's a lot of fear, um, not only because of the obvious fear of COVID-19, but also because people are finding fewer places to go for help. Many um, places for shelter, for meals, have been forced to scale back or 
close outright because of COVID-19. There are other organizations like UGM and some, you know, city initiatives that are trying to fill those gaps, but there's generally fewer places to go, more people in need, and, you know, just the, that, that anxiety that we all feel about COVID-19 and that threat um, is uh, felt much more acutely, I would say, in the downtown east side, especially given some of the recent uh, announcements. And what do we know about the spread in that we know there are cases, but very difficult, I would think, in the the population, particularly in the downtown east side, to get a real idea on how much it has spread already? Well, I mean, you saw yesterday um, the uh, health authorities uh, announced that there was a new outbreak at uh, United Poultry um, with several dozen cases in the downtown east side inside a building. So that's only about a block from UGM, and it's only about a block from Oppenheimer Park. So we don't have information to suggest that has been that widespread or that has been widespread into the general community. But I do know of several cases in the downtown east side, and I do know that there's um, there's a huge concern because people don't have the opportunity right now to uh, self-isolate or socially distance themselves. Um, so that's, yeah, obviously... Um, a, a major concern um, for for people whose lives are on the line. Uh, the mayor earlier today uh, talked about the, the outbreak at the chicken plant. He called it worrying. He said that uh, community centres are being offered up, but there needs to be better living conditions for people, particularly in the downtown east side. Uh, from what you can tell, have the community centres being offered up, have they, have they helped out at all? Oh, so we're super, uh, I guess we're heartened and hell- and glad that these uh, community centers and hotel rooms, I think it's more than 900 of them, have been set aside across the province um, for the homeless community. However, what we're, and, and that's great, I need to say that those are great large-scale efforts, but at the same time, we're not seeing things roll out nearly uh, as quickly as, enough as the emergency dictates um, and we're not seeing enough of them. So while these things are great, um, the needs are colossal here. And this population is extremely vulnerable. Um, we're talking, you know, seven, 8,000 homeless um, British Columbians. Uh, we're talking, you know, more than 3,600 people homeless in Metro Vancouver alone. So it's easy to do the math and see that the, our response is not at the level of the need. And we were waiting. I know that the... Uh, that Minister Shane Simpson is expected to make an announcement later this week um, that will detail some of the other efforts that are being outlined and planned. And everyone, I mean, Minister Simpson has great respect um, from many people in the downtown Eastside community. So we're hopeful and we're really looking forward and eager to see what happens there. But generally, um, from um, our collective response in, a, in the region, right from the bottom of government, right to the top and to every citizen um, we're not doing enough to protect these vulnerable uh, people, our friends and neighbors who need us. We got to do more. Uh, so we are expecting that announcement, and uh, Mayor Stewart talked about that, said saying that he has a sense of what's coming, and, and like you said, it will be later this week. So, what would you like to see uh, announced from Minister uh, from Shane Simpson? Um, our best, the best shot we think we've got here is to get people inside with places to actually socially distance themselves or to self-isolate. So that would be more uh, spaces, community center spaces, hotel spaces, 
dignified spaces where people can be healthy and protected. Without space to distance themselves, people who are homeless are in public all of the time, and that means that they are at risk 100% of the time. That, I mean, there's a no, it's, it's really complex. It's super complicated, but this is probably our best shot. Now, that would be an enormous effort, um, and we know these things take time, but we want to see, we just need to continually up our game right now to be there for, for these people who, who need us. And we're we're dealing with a lot of people as well who have other health issues and are dealing in some cases with addiction and are in that neighborhood because the services that they rely on are in that neighborhood. Is that one of the challenges, though, if you suddenly say, "Okay, we're going to open up these hotel rooms and you can stay in these hotel rooms, but they're not in that particular neighborhood? What does that do then to somebody who has been using those services and relies on them? Yeah, it's a great question, and that's one of those complications, those complexities that we have to deal with, and that's why it is such an enormous effort, because it's not a simple A to B straight line. There's all these other things we need to consider. Um, so th- what these these spaces need to be offered in conjunction with support, um, health supports, mental health supports, addiction supports, those types of things, and that's why it's not a simple answer, but the scope of the threat is so severe that we need to move on it. Um, and we have to understand that sometimes we won't get perfection, but we need to have action at the same time to the best of our ability and with all the best and brightest minds, because this, these, this population of, of, of our city, of our region, uh, really, really um, matters. They're valued and they're vulnerable. How would you see it playing out, though? Because as we we talk about this and we're in the thick of it, but we also are focused and looking ahead at when we get to the other side of it. I mean, I can't imagine a scenario where somebody is housed in a hotel or say a hotel is taken over, people are given housing, and then what? There's a a vaccine or or the restrictions are lifted and they get booted back out and say, okay, now you're back, you live on the street? Exactly. So this is um, part of the reason we're in this position right now is because we haven't done enough over the last several over the last decades to make sure that there isn't this vulnerable population struggling like this. So we need to look at this both on the short term. Let's get emergency support to help people survive through this and to give them support through this. And then also let's look long term. How can we leverage the incredible efforts that we need to do now to make sure that we're not in a position like this in the future and that we actually provide some long term supports? All right. Uh, we will leave it there. And Jeremy, as you mentioned, we are expecting to learn more about this later on this week uh, from the province. Uh, thanks so much for joining us and talking about this today. You bet. Happy to do it. Have a good afternoon. Well, I'm curious if this is something you have noticed. It might seem on the lighter side of things, but I do find it to be a bizarre sidebar story to the COVID-19 pandemic. Yesterday, I was sitting outside. I was doing a Zoom call with a friend who I haven't seen in many weeks. That, I'm sure, many of our listeners can relate to when... Something that has not happened before on my patio happened. A mouse poked his little head up 
kind of looked at me and then scampered right across the patio, very close to my feet, jumped up on a cement brick and then took off. And my guess is this probably does happen all the time. But I was thinking about that. Then I saw another story out of Victoria saying that the rodent behavior in Victoria has shifted a little bit in response to the pandemic. So I thought, well, maybe I'm not the only one who is experiencing or seeing things like this. And we decided, why not talk about this on the show today? So I am joined now by Chris Frederick, who is the president of the company Pest Detective. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It seems like an odd title or an odd uh, headline to be talking about the behavior of rodents and how it has shifted in response to the pandemic. Uh, but what is happening when we talk about rodents, be it rats, mice, or other rodents uh, during this pandemic? Well, like us, they have to adapt to these uh, times and circumstances. So they're uh, they're losing some of their places where they usually get food. And they'll be moving out in areas we may have not seen them before. Um, with restaurant closures and pubs closing down, they've had to they've had to adapt and make some changes and and maybe there's not uh, our behaviors are affecting them, you know, things like less human litter around and sanitation pickups or whatnot. It's it's all having a domino effect. Right. So even I would imagine with restaurants if going to take out and doing far less business and in, in many cases closing where rodents might have known um, known that there was the, the garbage can buffet on a daily no, daily on a daily basis. They're now having to search out food. Right. Because not every restaurant was able to pivot and go to take takeaway. So those restaurants could be gone and then where their garbage was put out or the buildings they were in, if they had any populations, they've had to, they had to go elsewhere. But yeah, you're right. Should people be concerned that rodents are going to be coming closer to their homes, or, or is there a bigger risk of them getting into homes? Um, so that, nothing's really changed. You should always have a perimeter inspection of your home to block off any openings around the home, at the base of the home, or keeping things away from touching the home uh, vegetation and trees, uh, which would allow them to get to the roof level and get access through um, roof intersections, things like that, or uh, gable vents and soffit vents. You should have a look at those as well, make sure they're still intact and nothing that they could chew through to get in. So it's for us, it's kind of a thing we, we deal with all the time. But right now, there's just a little bit of change because of what's going on with the restaurant and pub world, really. And the article that I'd seen about this also made mention of the fact that in some cases, rodents are now fighting each other and in some cases killing each other. Is that strange behavior? Well, yeah, it's, it's great. I've, I've seen that too. But, and when we see it as well, in, um, when we, we see extreme cases, of course, they'll become, there's cannibalism within the rodent uh, world. And when they get to when there's too high numbers, well, you know that a meal's a meal. They'll go after whatever, and as long as they have food, I mean the three things they want is food, shelter, and reproduction. So if they're doing all that, but if they're running out of food, some of their some of their young or others young, they'll you know it's it's survival of the fittest. They'll go after whatever they can get to survive. And, and plus, I mean, they, they kind of get, um, I mean, for the most part, I'm sure there are some people that, that like them, um, but rats in particular, I know a lot of people fear them, uh, equate them with filth, don't like them, but they are rather, they're very smart, aren't they? And they are, they're able to adapt quite quickly. Absolutely. Yes. They, 
they they've been successful worldwide for for a reason, and they will they will adapt. So whatever's coming their way, they will they'll be able to adapt absolutely. Uh, so, what advice then uh, do you have for people? Uh, like you said, it's something that you do on a you do pandemic, no pandemic. What advice do you have for people that might be noticing an increase in the number? Well, I mean, I hate to say, you know, plug our own companies, but let's say, just say, a lot of times you should call a professional. At the very least, you should be monitoring things with maybe snap traps or, again, doing what we call rodent proofing. Make sure your house does not have anything that's really appealing to the rodents coming up to it, whether it's an access into the home or your garage. Um, and even for people that have their restaurants and bars closed, uh, you don't want to, to abandon them. You should still maintain a relationship having your pest, pest control provider having you know at least a monthly maintenance to see what's going on there and to have a, have a look at that. And don't leave out food. You know, Sometimes people, there's a good time of year for gardening, Keep an eye on that. They might be going for bulbs. They might be going for your grass seed. Uh, they will be creative. You're composting. This is a this is a great time of year, typically, where food is available and around and around our homes and around the garden. And then once we start getting into fruit trees and and you know plants and our vegetables. All we like, the rats probably like those things too. <laughs> and one uh, final question, uh, getting rid of them, uh, is, is there a preferred way that you do that? Um, still industry-wide, um, a lot of times we're still using rodenticides in tamper-resistant stations, inside or outside. Uh, we also do offer to go the route of snap traps as well. They're both effective and some take more labor than others. But that's that's generally our two options. Live trapping, well, that's live trapping can be a bit more difficult. You know, live trap and relocate. Sometimes just moving the problem. Um, some people might appeal that might be appealing to them, but then it's going that's going to be your most costly. But uh, snap traps, live trapping, and installing devices and rodenticides in safe areas is very effective. All right. Good advice. Chris Frederick, president of Pest Detective. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank Uh, you. All right. Global News at 2 o'clock. Good afternoon. I'm Terry Shins. The RCMP say it was mid-Sunday morning before they began to prepare an emergency alert about an active shooter in Nova Scotia who had by then killed more than 20 people. But Nova Scotia RCMP Chief Superintendent Chris Leather says by then the shooter had already been stopped. At 10.15 a.m. Nova Scotia Provincial Emergency Management officials contacted the RCMP to offer the use of the public emergency alerting system. We were in the process of preparing an alert when the gunman was shot and killed by the RCMP. Police believe the gunman, 51-year-old Gabriel Wartman, was acting alone in a more than 12-hour rampage across northern Nova Scotia. 
COVID-19 pandemic. Chief Public Health Officer Dr. Teresa Tam says a special advisory committee on COVID-19 is working on setting criteria on when physical distancing limitations can be eased as we deal with the ongoing pandemic. Tam says the committee's looking at a number of benchmarks, such as the rate of hospitalizations, daily reports of new cases, and how the virus appears to be reproducing. I think it is something that the province is re-evaluating all the time. Uh, but the other work that I am doing with the Special Advisory Committee of the Chief Medical Officers of Health is looking at some of the criteria from a health perspective as to what those indicators might be. Several provinces are considering the start of loosening their lockdowns. Fraser Health in B.C. says it's making good progress on enforcing an order from the provincial health officer that would restrict health care workers to one long-term care home. So we're well underway. I think this week we're kind of getting closer to the final staffing plan. Dr. Martin Lavoie, Fraser Health's chief medical officer, says there's a lot of planning and organization involved to make sure the new system doesn't create gaps in staffing levels. In the meantime, he says it's not that those workers are breaching Dr. Henry's orders by continuing to work on their normal schedules, which often includes more than one facility. Because the process is to create the staffing plans, uh, work with the operators, adjust them accordingly to make sure we've reduced the risk of uh, creating staffing shortages. And then once that is done, then we sign them off. Lavoie says while that process is ongoing, they've introduced enhanced measures in all long-term care facilities to try and make sure residents and staff stay safe. Sershi Gangdev, Global News. Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart says he's holding virtual roundtables with uh, key sectors of the economy in particular, looking at slowly opening up Hollywood North amid the ongoing pandemic. Uh, we are ready to work with the province and the industry to think creatively and make this happen while keeping everyone safe. Because if we can, Vancouver can be among the first places in the world that reopens for business in this multi-billion dollar sector. Yesterday, Dr. Bonnie Henry said when the time comes to ease up, like every other sector, the film industry will have to abide by tougher guidelines, including limiting the number of people on sets, a lot of hand hygiene, and possibly wearing non-surgical masks as well. The city of Delta is seeing an overall decrease in crime these days including so-called persons crimes, such as break-and-enters and assaults. Those offenses are down 11% compared to this time last year. But Delta Police Chief Neil DeBoard says the pandemic is bringing forward a number of new calls, which are not typical. It's around public distancing, around people that were gathering in large groups, around resellers of PPE, and really it's driving... What I, I, I brought forward was a number of different elements that I think that we weren't expecting as a result of the pandemic. And the board says it's up to officers to determine whether or not an arrest should be made when it comes to an offender who is potentially infected, adding they can often be released on a promise to appear so they don't bring illness into the jail. Global News Time 204, latest AM 730 traffic. Here is Caitlin Ozanski. Good afternoon. Things are looking pretty good for this rainy Wednesday commute. No stoles or collisions to report, but there is some road work that'll slow you down. In downtown Vancouver, crews are grinding and paving along Georgia between Thurlow and Howe. Single lanes in both directions wrapping up by 4 o'clock. Also in Vancouver, crews are working along Granville at 12th Avenue. North and south have the right lane blocked each way. And also in Vancouver, 1st Avenue at Nanaimo, it's down to single lane traffic in both directions. Breakfast Club is Canada is helping children facing food insecurity 
charity during the COVID-19 crisis with the creation of an emergency fund to donate Text Club to 2022. Thank you. In the AM730 Traffic Center, I'm Caitlin Osansky. Global Sky Tracker weather periods of rain ending late this afternoon. A highs of 12, partly cloudy tonight. Showers come back, a low down to 8. Cloudy tomorrow, some showers in the morning and a high of 15. Clearing Friday, back to rain on Saturday. In Gibson's, cloudy showers and 11. Outside CKNW at Pacific Center downtown, we're also at 11 degrees. On the markets, Dow Jones up 456. TSX in Toronto up 348. Our Canadian Canadian dollar, 70.62 cents U.S. Global News Time, 206. I'm Terry Shins. Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday afternoon. We are going to talk a little bit about tensions that can emerge. Many people feeling um, stuck at home, feeling a bit, well, cut off, being quarantined, whether people are self-isolating. What happens, though, if you are self-isolating or in a home with somebody who is violent or or if you are somebody who is a victim of domestic violence? Well, unfortunately, we have seen those numbers go up since the pandemic started. And joining me to talk a little bit more about that is Angela Marie McDougall, who is the Executive Director of the Battered Women's Support Services. Angela, thank you so much for being with us. Hello, Joe. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to this today. We wanted to talk a bit more about this. Uh, Crime Stoppers actually put out some information mm-hmm. earlier today as well, explaining to people that it's okay to call uh, for help. You can do so anonymously, or if you suspect to somebody you know mm-hmm. is in this position. What are you seeing, though, as far as the numbers and when it comes to domestic violence? Mm-hmm. So we, uh, I had the pleasure and privilege to go to China last year, and I met with uh, activists uh, there. Uh, and so when uh, so I had some you know had some relationships there and was watching when uh, things sort of uh, really hit the fan in China and quarantine was was in effect and what I heard from our colleagues there was that they were seeing uh, violence increase uh, and that the and that they thought that the most important thing was to get the word out uh, to anybody that was concerned about a relationship and being co-quarantined with an abusive partner. Uh, to get the word out that there were resources available and then for us to make sure that those resources were available. So we, we scaled up really fast, uh, actually, in one day uh, to turn our uh, telephone line, which was during the day, during the week line, to a 24-hour line. And then what we've seen progressively since uh, the beginning of March has been uh, progressive increases in calls from, you know, 50% to 100%, uh, uh, to peaking around 300% increase in calls. But here's the thing, Joe, that, that is a lot for us, certainly. Uh, one of our workers had 18 calls in, in one shift one day. That's a lot. But we're, we want that. We actually, this is, this is something that we want. We already know that violence against women, gender-based violence, is already a pandemic. It is already happening in in uh, just an incredible amount. So we're, we have a pandemic, pandemic that is being overlaid with another pandemic. So we, we want anybody that's experiencing uh, violence in a relationship to reach out, that they know that there are resources available. And so the fact that we have been getting those calls is, is, makes, is very good. That's a good thing. 
And how has it changed then how you help somebody in that situation right. when if you're isolating, you can't go anywhere or you can't move at this point? How do you help someone? It's changed everything, 100%. And so we had to uh, learn as we go. I mean, we, there's, we don't have like any this kind of situation. We, we don't have a, a, a context. We don't have a frame of reference to, to refer to. So we have to draw on our, what we know about abusive relationships and uh, apply learning in real time. So we did quick learning about understanding what safety means, how to plan for safety, how to support uh, victims, uh, how to do lethality assessment. You know, Jill, uh, I have to tell you and, and your listeners that since uh, April, we've had three women killed uh, in Canada by their male partners. And and I'm not talking about the mass killing that we had in Nova Scotia, where there is there are reports to say that that killing that happened uh, started with a domestic violence uh, situation with, uh, with the killer uh, going after his ex-wife. So, you know, when you think about we've had three killings. Uh, in Canada, in Ontario, one in Ontario, and Manitoba, and another in Nova Scotia, and then this mass killing where domestic violence was uh, believed to be at the beginning of that. Uh, this is no joke uh, right now, and we uh, we don't think that there's enough uh, attention being paid on this. Certainly, we 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 don't from the from the you know we, I know it's a it's, there's a lot to grapple with, uh, and so we uh, have done our part to amplify the message, uh, to ensure that the supports are available, to reach out to our community. And we know we're very glad that there are uh, victims calling. It matters. It, it must be difficult, though, because when, when you educate people and get the word out there on things to look for, the things to look for, you can't do anymore. If it's, say, injuries or marks or a change in behavior, people that aren't spending time with friends, because people aren't doing that now anyway. So that's true, and uh, and that's something that we needed to think about. But what's been great, Joe, is that we've been getting calls from neighbors who are concerned about their neighbor. Either, either they know that their that, that their their neighbors are uh, that there's you know um, a, a woman that's being abused already, or they've heard something like in the in you know recently. And so we've heard from neighbors. We've heard from family members that are concerned about their sister, their daughter, their mother, uh, their grandmother, uh, their cousin. Uh, they already know that there's abuse happening, and so they're wanting to, uh, you know, to get support and figure out how they can be a resource to their loved one. We're hearing from coworkers who, uh, you know, 80% of us that if we experience abuse, we will tell a coworker, hmm. and so coworkers are a resource. So they, you know, coworkers are calling and concerned about their coworker who's now in a work from home situation. So there's, um, uh, you know, the, th- the thing that we've seen right now, and this is uh, the bright side of uh, what is some of the worst that humans do to humans, is that we've never seen uh, communities mobilizing around this this way. We, this is what we've wanted in some sense all along, is to have everybody keeping their eye out and everybody seeing that this is an important thing. You know, but it's been so normalized, I suppose, uh, that now in this very extraordinary, unprecedented moment, uh, it's really, uh, really, everyone's really, uh, there's much more consciousness around what it would be mean for somebody in uh, living with an abusive partner. So we, you know, we're, um, we're learning as we go. We're applying learning quickly. And uh, we're working with our networks all across uh, Metro Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and internationally, because we're getting calls internationally, Joe. Uh, because our, our number's a you know, toll-free number that's international. And for anybody that might be concerned, thinking, oh, it's none of my business, I don't want to get involved, maybe if I get involved it'll make things worse, what do you say to that? So 
so that's uh, that's uh, it's good to be cautious and it's good to uh, trust your instincts uh, and to consider how to proceed carefully. I would suggest c- connecting with our website, which is bwss.org. We've dedicated our homepage uh, to information about how to help a friend, how to how to reach out. Uh, and anybody can call our line, uh, and that number is also on our website, bwss.org, to consult about somebody in order to, uh, to get information. We're here for everyone that is concerned about uh, domestic violence, violence against women, gender-based violence. And so that, uh, and that's, that's, we're, we're here to offer support, uh, to talk through possible scenarios. Uh, nobody has to be alone here trying to figure this out right now, and the mutual aid is the best thing we can do. Uh, with this pandemic that is being overlaid by another pandemic. All right, we'll leave it there. Angela, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Thanks for joining us to, to bring us up to date on this. Appreciate it. So grateful for the opportunity. Thanks, Jill. All right. Angela Marie McDougall is the executive director of the Battered Women's Support Services. Again, that's bwss.org if you want to learn more information about that. We'll take a short break. Stick with us here on The Jill Bennett Show. Good afternoon and a very big thank you to all the frontline workers. So far, things looking pretty good for this Wednesday afternoon commute. It is a rainy one, so do take it easy out there. It's just road work so far, slowing you down through Mission along Stave Lake at Knight Avenue. Single lane alternating traffic through that area. In Maple Ridge, crews are working along Dudney Trunk Road at 256. And you can expect delays there in all directions. And watch out in Coquitlam. Crews are paving low heat westbound at Pine Tree, so you're down to single lane traffic. To help stay safe and at home, Rona is offering free parcel shipping and curbside pickup with online purchases at rona.ca. In the AM730 Traffic Center, I'm Caitlin Osansky.